And that is in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, the apostle Paul wrote to the evangelist Titus and said to him, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. I put a little map up here and you can see the pink is Italy, the yellow is Greece, the orange is Asia, and way down here to the far right down here is Palestine where the city of Jerusalem is. And then off in the distant west from Jerusalem is that island there in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And that's where Titus was, where Paul had been with him and left him. And he says, I left you there in that island so that you might set in order things that are lacking, he says, and appoint elders in every city. This indicates to us that there were apparently a number, at least one or more than one church on this little, not so little island of Crete. And if we blow the map up, we can see here these cities we may recognize from the book of Acts, at least the latter part of the book, Phoenix, Fairhaven, Lycia, and Salmone. And given the fact that the island of Crete is about the size of six counties in the state of Missouri, uh, it's a pretty good size land mass, you could say that Titus, uh, without an automobile, has his work cut out for him as he travels about and seeks to establish these churches and ordain elders in those churches. Now the fact that there were churches there prior to the writing that we've just read from Titus implies that there were churches without elders in the New Testament scriptures, and we're going to say more about that as we go along tonight. But my topic assigned to me or asked to talk on is leadership in the absence of elders. Now, I don't claim to have all the answers. I maybe have as many questions as you do, but we'll try to provide some principles that will help us in thinking about the questions relative to this matter. The topic questions that were given me are these. Number one, what is the pattern for leadership in congregations before they had elders in the New Testament church? Number two, what role do teachers play in leadership? And number three, do evangelists serve as interim elders until elders are appointed? And then uh, three additional questions were these. What about democratic voting in business meetings? And what is the meaning of 1 John 2, 12 through 14? And then last, 4C here is, what about the one-man pastor system? Well, there's a whole gamut of questions here, and I think these are valid questions. I'm going to, frankly... Uh, I know we were joking about this before, about avoiding questions, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to defer question 4B to the Q&A if anyone wants to bring up that matter when we get there. And I'd like to devote the rest of my time to the other questions on this list. Okay, so I'm going to present an outline tonight, and here is basically the outline I want to follow. I think in order to get this all out on the table, we need to take a quick look at the eldership pattern, as most of us are familiar with it, and to look at it is to answer part of these questions. Um, secondly, I'm going to pose the question, did all New Testament congregations have elders? Number three, we want to look at some of the interim arrangements in our day that either have been suggested or are currently being practiced in the absence of elders. And then finally, we'll take a few minutes to look at some of the passages relative to the uh, principles in the absence of elders or some guiding principles. So let's start with a quick overview of the eldership pattern. I find the earliest mention, as best I can tell, of elders in churches in the New Testament is in the book of Acts. If you look at Acts chapter 11, 
There you'll remember there was to be a famine down in Judea and the brethren up in Syria, up north, decided that they would send help down there to address that problem with uh, the difficulty for the need of the brethren down there in time of the famine. It says, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And then it says, this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This is the earliest, I think, reference to elders in among primarily, apparently, Judean churches. If we look at Acts 14, this seems to be the earliest reference to elders in churches that uh, were primarily in Gentile regions. In Acts 14.23, this is during Paul's first journey, you know, which was kind of represented there by that uh, blue line. And uh, in verse uh, 23, it says, So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Now, some of you fellows might correct me on this, but my reading of this section of Acts 14 tells me that really... The every church that is in reference here is primarily that group of churches there that is represented there sort of in the central part of Asia. And maybe I'm misreading it, but that's the way I understand the text and the narrative there. Really quickly, there is an excellent overview, as most of you know, in Acts the 20th chapter of the eldership. There in verses 17 and 18, we find that from Miletus, the apostle Paul sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And they came to him, and when they did, he really had quite an extensive speech and talk with them. And the part I'm interested in occurs in verses 27 through 29, where there the apostle got around to his advice to them as elders when he said, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, the next thing I want to call your attention to is a few words in this passage, because these words here basically tell us three things that the elders in the Bible are called, and those names imply their actions or their work as elders. You have, first of all, there, they're called elders, obviously. Then you have this pastoral language that has to do with their being shepherds and that they are shepherds among a flock. And then finally, the term overseers is used here. I want to dwell just a moment on the pastoral language here for the sake of answering one of the questions, and that is, in Ephesians 4 and verse 11, we're told there that Christ gave certain gifts to the church, and I like this particular translation here. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. I'm going to focus on the word pastors there, and the word pastor, as you all know, is probably one of the most abused words in the Bible, even though this is the only place in the New Testament where the word pastor occurs. Now, it could have just been as easily translated shepherd because the same Greek word is translated shepherd all over the place, but for some reason, pastors took hold way back in the middle, way back in the Reformation period and has stayed in this passage. Pastor is just the Latin word for shepherd. So the only people in the New Testament, as I read the New Testament, who have the job of shepherding and for whom pastoral language is a primary uh, term for describing what the elders do, tells me that the pastors here are exactly the same individuals as the shepherd 
or the elders of Acts chapter 20 and other passages related thereto. So, elders are referred to by these three important terms. They're called elders, shepherds or pastors, and overseers, which is also the idea of bishops in the idea of overseers. You also know that in the New Testament there were a plurality of elders in the congregations, as we noticed in the passage that we just read a moment ago. In 1423, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. Now, the fact that there were elders in every church says something about the jurisdiction. If there were elders in every church, that implies that the jurisdiction of the elders of a church did not extend beyond that church over which they were appointed. If you let this circle here, if I can get it to come up, there it is. If you let this circle here represent a congregation, then really what you've got in the New Testament is a picture where there is a plurality of elders. It might have been four, it might have been two, it might have been three or six or who knows. We don't know how many men necessarily qualified in one congregation or another in the first century world. Now, uh, what we don't find, however, as I read the New Testament, and I think most of you would agree anyway, that we don't find this situation where there is the elder of a church. Now, what we do know from history, if you keep reading the history of, the, of, of Christianity after the time of the apostles, Early in the second century, and a writer by the name of Ignatius of Antioch uh, actually describes how that there was the elder of this church and the elder of that church, except they didn't call it the elder. They used the term elder to describe, uh, or rather they used another one of the terms for the elder to describe him and called him the bishop. And this, of course, eventually resulted in an arrangement like this. So first of all, the idea that the bishop of a church, first of all, that's not a biblical idea. We can't find that anywhere in the New Testament. But certainly can we not find the Episcopal type of government such as depicted here where a bishop is over several churches. Now I said all that to say this, that what happens today is simply the exchange of now the term bishop for another one of the three labels that the New Testament gives to the elders of the church, and that is that people like to apply the word pastor to the some person or the preacher maybe of a particular or maybe every congregation essentially, uh, the pastor of a church. And this skirts into the question 4C, what about the one-man pastor system? Well, if you think about it for just a moment and you look at uh, the qualifications of elders or pastors in the New Testament, this would disqualify a good portion of these individuals today who are commonly referred to as the pastor. Think of it for a moment. You get a 24-year-old fellow with a freshly printed degree from a Bible seminary with a wife about 21 years old carrying a six-month-old baby and he moves in and they hire him up in order to be the shepherd of that congregation. Well, that's not a pastor, not in the biblical sense of the term, because a pastor has certain qualifications, and those qualifications would exclude that particular individual as I just described him, because I've grouped the qualifications, by the way, in about six categories here, and the fact of the matter is, is the, the young man I just described could not possibly be the pastor, the shepherd, or the elder of a church for the very obvious reason that his home life has not been in existence long enough to meet the qualifications. Well, this is quickly, and hopefully quick enough, an overview of the eldership, generally speaking, in terms of its uh, features that we've studied for years. 
Now, it occurs to me that I've never seen a list or an attempt to make a list of all the congregations in the New Testament where there are specifically elders mentioned. Now, maybe it's in some book I haven't read, but so I came up with my own list, and I don't claim it to be perfect. Maybe it's not exhaustive, but I find in Acts 11.30 that there were churches, plural, in Judea who had elders, as we pointed out. Same passage, Jerusalem, is implied. Uh, Lystra, Acts 14.23, Iconium, same passage, Derby, same passage, Pisidian Antioch, the same passage, Ephesus, Acts 20:17, Philippi, Philippians 1 and verse 1, and then on the island of Crete, presumably at a little later time than the writing of the book of Titus, and then finally, maybe there were others that I've overlooked. Now, you fellows may think of one, and if you do, let me know. I'll be happy to add it to this list. But I'm talking here about churches where there are specifically elders identified in the scriptures. Now then, on that point then, I want to go on and go to the next point that I want to cover tonight. And that is address sort of the flip side of this. And that is, did all New Testament congregations have elders? Now, I find a number of congregations that are mentioned in the New Testament where uh, there's no specific reference to elders. Now, they may, be, they may have been there, but we don't have any record of it or any indication of it in the New Testament. Quickly, uh, Damascus, Acts 9 and verse 2. Lydda, Acts 9.35. Joppa, 9.42. Syrian Antioch, that's a different Antioch than the one where Paul established elders in Acts 13 later in the chapter. Also, uh, the island of Cyprus, it's a little unclear whether there were even any congregations there, but I'm going, for the sake of illustration tonight, going to assume that there was at least one in Acts 13, the early part of the chapter. Thessalonica, Acts 17. Berea, Acts 17. Athens, again, same chapter. Corinth, Acts 18, and verse 8. Caesarea, Acts 18. Uh, Puteoli, if I pronounce it right, Acts 28, 13. Colossae, Acts 1 and verse 2, Rome, Romans 1 and verse 1, and then finally, if you count less Ephesus, you have the seven churches of Asia, which would amount to six congregations. And again, I'm not saying positively that there were not elders there. I'm just saying that here are several churches where there in Scripture, as far as I'm able to tell, there is no explicit reference to elders being ordained in those particular churches. Now, having said that, I think there is some places, however, where elders in these churches could possibly be implied. And so these 19 congregations, among them, there may have been some by, if you narrow it down by certain language in certain passages of Scripture, they may have had elders. For example, if we look at Hebrews, the uh, 13th chapter and verse 7, the record there says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Then again, verse 17, Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch for your souls as those who must give account. Hebrews 13 and verse 24, Greet all those who rule over you. Now, I've heard these passages frequently applied to elders, and certainly they would. They would certainly apply to elders in terms of the description of their role and the relationship of the congregation to them. Uh, however, I'm not altogether sure that this is a direct reference only to elders as I survey the passages relative to this topic. 
Now, let me offer to you tonight a little speculation, and I freely confess that that's what it is. We're looking at the book of Hebrews here, and if Hebrews is a letter actually written to churches primarily of a Jewish uh, population, shall we say, and that oftentimes is the way the authorship of the book is described, or the recipients of the book are described, then maybe this church, at, or the church is, to whom these, this letter was addressed, was in Judea. Some believe that's where the letter of Hebrews was written. If that's the case, then, then we remember in Acts 11 that there were elders in Judea, and we know from Acts 15 that there were elders in Jerusalem. So what that means is, then, we got a couple of places here, Lydda and Joppa, uh, that are actually in the realm of Judea. Uh, the pink there is Judea, and way up here is Lydda and Joppa. So what I'm doing is kind of narrowing down the list little by little here. Okay, next. There are a couple of other places, Thessalonica and Rome, where there is language that implies or could apply, definitely could apply to elders. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12, it says there that, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Also, Romans chapter 12 and verse 6 and verse 8, the apostle wrote, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And then down in verse 8, we skip down, He who leads, let him do it with diligence. Again, this is language that would certainly apply to elders, but I'm not altogether persuaded that it must be only elders to whom such language as this applies. Also, one other here, and I'll quote this one, and this one is kind of a segue into another point, or the next point that I want to advance to, and that is uh, the city of Corinth. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Now here is the idea of submission, and we certainly could associate that language with the presence of elders in the Corinthian congregation. The only thing is, is the very next phrase, Paul says, and to everyone who labors and works with us. This implies, of course, that uh, this submission that Paul was um, expecting the Corinthians to follow through with may not necessarily only refer to elders. All right? So we're back here to the point then, if I can keep hitting the right button here, we're back here to the point that this list of churches where elders are not specifically mentioned, there are a few at least that they may have had elders based upon the particular passages that we've quoted. But the rest of these that are on the list in blue here, I don't see any reference to elders in the New Testament scriptures. Okay, now then, that kind of leads us up. I just wanted to lay all this groundwork here to get all the facts out ahead of us here so that we can pose this question. What about congregations today which do not have a plurality of elders? And what about, as question number one was, what is the pattern for leadership in congregations before they had elders in the New Testament scriptures? Well, my first response to that question is, is I'm a little reluctant to use the word pattern 
because the pattern, as we use the word commonly, is a pretty strong term and implies some pretty solid and unmistakable facts that I'm not completely able to account for in the New Testament scriptures. However, that doesn't mean that there is not some guidelines or some principles that can guide us as we will see here in just a few minutes. So I'm going to go on to my next point and talk about some of the interim arrangements that have either been suggested for the leadership in churches without elders or some that are currently practiced. And some of these, you know, make great sermons, but may really kind of be aside from the point that the brethren here are seeking answers to tonight. So I'll not try to dwell on those too long, but they do need to be mentioned because I think they are probably, in some places anyway, things that are matters of concern to us. So let's consider some of the interim arrangements. When I say back here, when I say that have either been suggested or currently practiced, I mean that things I've heard people talk about maybe uh, conversations in private, maybe what we ought to do or what we ought not to do in the absence of elders and such. And so let me present to you tonight some of those that I've heard and thought about and considered. Number one, there are those who just simply say they're not interested in elders. And I think the answer to this is pretty obvious, that really, if that's our assessment of the matter, then we, we really need to go back and read our New Testament because the New Testament definitely lays out, I do believe, a pattern there for us to follow and to work toward as the goal of every congregation. So I think it's a mistake simply to say, well, you know, nobody can ever qualify anyway or whatever the reason is, uh, we're just not interested or we are afraid if we get elders, we're going to lose our voice in the congregation or whatever the reason might be, we need to really seriously evaluate that question or that matter or that idea, rather, if that's what's in our mind. Number two, uh, I know that there is the temptation to relax the qualifications of elders. I know this to be the case. And we look at some of the qualifications and we wonder, well, maybe, maybe we're not interpreting these right, or maybe we aren't really understanding exactly what it was the Apostle Paul had, or maybe we live in a different time than they did back there, and it was easier to get people to qualify. Remember, I put these qualifications here in six categories that uh, you can read the qualifications. I know you're all familiar with them. But it looks to me like the, the area of compromise or the area of relaxing that we oftentimes seem to focus on are those areas of the eldership qualifications that center in the home life. And maybe that's because of the society we live in. You know, this society has done everything it can and is still working very hard to do everything it can to erode the New Testament biblical concept of the family. And tonight, if you believe in the family as the New Testament describes it, you are an enemy, practically an enemy of the state, it seems. Be that as it may, uh, because of that and because of the influences in society for a long time, we seem to want to kind of water down or erode these uh, qualifications relative to the home life of elders. Now, I know that's not my topic tonight, but I wanted to say something about that. So that's not an option, I don't think. I think we need to be very careful before we just um, sort of willy-nilly decide that uh, maybe we've not understood these qualifications properly through the years. And so let me consider the next matter. Number three, is the evangelist an interim elder? And this question number three, do evangelists as, uh, serve as interim elders until elders are appointed? 
Now, this is really kind of an open-ended question. It's not specific enough, really, to give a good answer to. And I'm not blaming the guys for coming up with the question. Sorry, fellas. But what I mean by that is, is the question kind of assumes that all evangelists are equal. You know, I make a big distinction between that 24-year-old that I mentioned earlier, and nothing against you guys that are 24 and wanted to be an evangelist, but we've all been 24 before, those of us who are older than 24, and we all know that when you're that age, you don't have the experience that a 60-year-old has. You don't have the Bible knowledge that a 60-year-old has. So I think there is somewhat of a difference between, you know, a young evangelist and an older evangelist, because a man has many years with much experience and much Bible study and, and all of that under his belt, he is far more capable of helping guide and lead a congregation than a young man all alone by himself. Now, I know I'm not giving a full answer to this question, but I'll point this out in conjunction to what I've just said. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9, here was an evangelist. And the Apostle Paul said, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Uh, I don't know how young Young was, you know, there's all the debate about how old Timothy was. Maybe he was 40, some say. But we really don't know how old Timothy was. But I know this, he was a youth. Whatever Paul meant by that, and an elder is not. So I don't see how that an, an, an evangelist can be an elder in that sense. And maybe we can discuss the particulars of that more in detail in the question and answer. Let me go on now, though. Uh, the fourth thing that was brought up, and this is one of the questions, question 4A, is what about democratic voting in business meetings? And I'm going to spend just a little bit of time on this because I know that this is something that's widely practiced, I know, in some form or another. It's not the same everywhere. And um, I know that uh, uh, that is the case. And so I want to say a few words about that. First of all, we're talking here about making decisions on essentially the showing of hands. Now, some people, like I said, who don't want an eldership, they claim anyway that they want to retain this practice because they think if that, if that is how they have their voice to be heard in the church. The only way they can be heard is if they have an opportunity to cast their vote for something. But I'm gonna say, First of all, that a good eldership is going to take the opinions of the church into consideration. Any leadership, frankly, elders or not, is going to take the uh, thoughts and the opinions or the uh, advice of members of the church into consideration. And so an eldership should not lord it over people and simply say, well, it doesn't matter what you think. I'm going to do what I want to do. That wouldn't even be a qualified man who would say such a thing. So the question, however, in question 4A, is a different matter. What about democratic voting? Now, I've often heard people just simply brush this aside with the assertion, well, the church is not a democracy. And that's true. The church is not a democracy. You know, we know good and well that the church is a monarchy. It has a king. And the, in a monarchy, the king makes the rules. The people don't decide what the truth is or what the right and wrong is in a kingdom. So the church is not in the business of making decisions that have to do in the realm of law uh, 
making law in the place of the king. So the church is not a democracy, I don't think is really a good answer to question 4A there because when people are getting together or whenever they think they're voting or if that's the prion that they follow or they think they're following, uh, they're really not exercising rule making or they shouldn't be in the realm encroaching upon the realm of the king. That is making laws where the king has made laws or changing the king's law by democratic vote. What we're deciding on sometimes is whether or not we're going to do this or that all within the realm, presumably, of the laws that the king has made. Now, the problem with the democratic voting is that the, it's basically, essentially, the church being run by a show of hands. And you may say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, sometimes it may work just fairly well, but sometimes it may not. You know, it can work pretty good, I guess, under some situations if you have a, a group of brethren who basically have a scriptural knowledge and of the work and purpose of the church, and they have that work and purpose at the forefront of their thoughts and their motives in making decisions in what we're going to do with the money or who we're going to send where or how much we're going to support so-and-so or who we're going to get to work on the plumbing or whatever it is. Uh, if you have men who have the cause of Christ at heart and know what that cause is and understand scripturally what it is, have it at heart and are also, number three, humble in their opinions and are not offended when they don't always get their way and everyone doesn't side with them every time, you know, it can work pretty good. But invariably, maybe not invariably, but very often, what happens is, is someone moves in, maybe everything's going along just fine, someone moves in from another state, from another church, and that brother comes in and he doesn't share the same kind of thinking that the congregation that he just moved into has. And he may be somewhat of a carnally minded brother. He may know nothing about the scriptures. He may know nothing about the brotherhood and know nothing about how the, we as a people have typically interpreted various passages of scripture relative to the things that we're getting ready to decide on. And what ends up happening is that uh, a lot of times uh, he may himself have a soul, a single opinion apart from everyone else and it may not be a biblical opinion and he may insist on having that opinion recognized. And we've seen this, we all know this. What happens is, is that uh, eight brothers over here will acquiesce to him because they don't want to rock the boat and they're generally passive in business meetings and that kind of thing. And what ends up happening is that brother ends up running the church by deciding to veto everything they want to do and everything they try to accomplish. We know about this, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Now then, I want to turn it around though and say this. You know, while I know there's a lot of this, that's a lot of the idea of deciding things kind of by a show of hands sort of practice in our churches around about, I know that the opposite can happen as well. It may just be that one brother who is carnally minded and doesn't understand what the really the work of the church is. It may be the other way around where the majority is like that. And when the majority has that unbiblical concept of the work of the Lord, then they're just making all kinds of decisions that are maybe unscriptural 
and committing sin in the process and involving people in such sin when they make such decisions. So while on the one hand I look at this and I say, well, sometimes it works, I can say from experience that I've observed, and many of you can too, that many times it does not work at all. And it really creates a situation that only amounts to uh, the soil for division and discord. Well, the simple answer that the church is a democracy will not work, uh, or not a, a church is not a democracy, I don't think is the right answer. But anyway, so a majority vote is one possibility. And then lastly, there is some combination of these, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. You can sort of use your imagination. I'm going to have to get on with my time. I'm running out here. So what we want to get on now to finally, and maybe this is the part you might have wished I'd have spent more time on, and that is number four, guiding principles in the absence of elders. And there are a few passages of Scripture that I do think present to us a kind of uh, set of principles that we can go by in view of the fact that elders may not be in our congregation uh, at this point. One is Acts 14 and verse 23, where I read there that it pleased the apostles and elders. And by the way, they had already decided a matter of law, the apostles and elders did. And I think there was probably inspiration in both parties of apostles and elders. They had already decided the matter of law, as you know. Now they're deciding another matter that doesn't seem to be a matter of law, and that is just the question of sending a couple of men to Antioch. Maybe you guys can correct me, but that's the way I understand what's going on here. And they decide to choose, uh, send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And the record here says, if I can get this thing to advance, uh, that uh, namely Judas, who was also called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Now what I see here is a passage in which we have the company of apostles, the company of elders, as well as the whole church being involved in this decision. When it says it pleased the apostles and elders, uh, the language here is that of a consensus and a decision that was made on this occasion for the purpose of sending these individuals out. And uh, these leading men, as I read it, are actually part of the whole church. They certainly are in elders, uh, Barsabas and Silas. And I don't see here that this passage requires us to understand that these are elders as well. So their own company here, I think, refers to the congregation. And these individuals are called leading men in among the brethren. So the question is, do we have a scriptural example of such leading men besides what is, seems to be implied here? And I think we do. If we look over in Acts, the 13th chapter, in verse 1, the Bible there says, now, in the church that was at Antioch, this is Syrian Antioch, where there were no elders, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Okay, now this skirts into question Number two, what role do teachers play in leadership? And then in this passage, we find these fellows are all named, there are five of them, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, the Bible says that as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then the next verse says, Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. 
Now here we have prophets and teachers involved directly in this particular event, this particular sending out of these brethren. Now I know the Holy Spirit is involved, that's true, but this is the miraculous age of the church. But the instruments through which this uh, initiating work was done were the prophets and teachers of the congregation there in the city of Antioch. So my friends, uh, it looks to me like that once they sent these fellows out, uh, Barnabas and Saul, then we're left with Manian, Simeon, and Lucius of Cyrene, who remained there in Antioch apparently for some time. Another and related passage here is Hebrews, the fifth chapter, and verses 12 through 14. Here, the Apostle Paul says, For by this time you ought to be teachers. Now, what Paul's talking about here, as you know, is that there needs to be a more maturity on your part, he told them. You need to have more of a spiritual growth in the kingdom of God than you have shown so far in your spiritual life. And he says, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and have come to have need of milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This tells me that in churches in the New Testament, there were individuals who did not have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil, and there were those who either did have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil, or were admonished to become such. Now, I don't believe that it is really a, a biblical idea always to allow all brothers to make all decisions in a congregation on simply this basis right here as much as anything else. Because the truth of the matter is, is if you just decide by who has the most number of votes and to get the most number of votes, maybe somebody brings in a quorum of teenage boys to vote that never go to a business meeting otherwise in order to win a vote, then what you have essentially got is a case where you've got people who do not have their senses exercised to discern good and evil making important decisions in the Lord's work right alongside those who do. And Paul, or the Hebrew writer, whoever he is here, indicates to, to my mind that there is the need that people who have this kind of discernment are the ones who actually ought to be making the decisions in the body of Jesus Christ and in the New Testament church. Okay, I'm going to close out here with one more passage, and this is just sort of tacked on at the end here, but you know the verse, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In conjunction with Hebrews chapter 5, here is another admonition that men need to be brought on board as teachers of the word of God, and teachers of the word of God, according to Hebrews 5, are those who, through reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In other words, men who are well qualified and very knowledgeable in the scriptures and who are known as such are really the men that should be primarily leading the church in the absence of elders. And it is from that pool of men that eventually elders can be ordained and, and appointed. Now, I will say this. You know, I've talked about this before with people in private conversation, and they say, well, you know, 
you got to be careful there because I know of a congregation where brother so-and-so is not a teacher, but he's one of those fellows that just has it up here and everybody always wants to know what he has to say. Well, I'm not trying to exclude that brother. I'm just pointing out that that brother, even though he may not be a public teacher, may very well be and can be recognized as an individual who is able, by reason of use, to discern both good and evil. Certainly, he ought to be consulted. But the whole point here is ultimately, I think, is that it is those who devour the word of God. It is those who uh, focus upon the teachings of the scriptures and labor in their minds to apply them that ought to be the primary leadership of the congregation and that we ought to move away however we can away from just simply a showing of hands in order to make decisions in the body of Jesus Christ.